Uh, Gabby and I, for example, uh, we went to a movie the other day uh, and we saw the new uh, documentary about Whitney Houston's life. That's the sort of thing we do, you know, the kind of Hollywood blockbuster down to uh, Palace uh, West Garth. That's how we roll. And uh, so we went to see the, uh, the, the movie about Whitney Houston's life. And uh, I, I, it was really uh, quite a sad thing. Uh, to see how drugs and alcohol destroyed Whitney Houston's life. That, that was very sad. It destroyed her voice. Uh, she died very young, if you don't know the story. Uh, that was very sad, but uh, that wasn't the thing that made us sick. It wasn't the thing that kind of really turned our stomach upside down. The thing uh, that made us feel sick uh, was the fact that, that Whitney Houston's only daughter was introduced to drugs. Uh, she was a part of that scene. She was introduced to drugs when she was only four or five years old, and she was dead by the time she was 22. And you see this in the documentary. And I know addiction is a very complicated thing. I don't want to trivialise it. But I have to say, when I was watching that as part of the documentary, when I read on the screen that she was dead by the age of 22, I felt like screaming at Whitney Houston and her husband, you make me sick. What kind of parents do that to their kid? You make me sick. I'm sure we've all felt that when we've seen something or heard about something. And that's how Christ feels about this church in Laodicea. They make him sick. They make him feel like he wants to spew them out of his mouth. That's a pretty confronting thing to hear from Christ. So let's have a look at the letter. If you've got it open there, first actually, you see that this is a letter to the church in Laodicea. So as we've done with each city in this series, this is the last of the seven churches. Well, What do we know about this city of Laodicea? Uh, well, have a look at this map. Uh, it's going to pop up on the screen, hopefully, a, a map of where these seven churches are. Uh, and if you look at the map, uh, you'll see that... Uh, lay- oh, can you see that? It's quite small, isn't it? Uh, I should have had a little pointer thing. Uh, but hopefully you can zoom in on Laodicea. It's about 65 kilometres from Philadelphia, uh, where we were last week. Uh, and you'll see that in visiting these seven churches, uh, you can follow around. Uh, Ephesus is kind of... Uh, let me just uh, let's get all kind of... Uh, So this is Ephesus, that's where we started. And from there, we've basically done a circuit around these seven churches. Uh, So we've gone from, uh, oh, thanks, no, yeah, I I probably don't. Uh, So we've gone from Ephesus around to Smyrna, uh, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia. Uh, And now we're back to Laodicea. We've almost finished this circuit. It's actually, uh, it was actually a common kind of trade route, a postal route. uh, And that's why these letters would have been sent around uh, to these seven churches around that circuit. And like most of the cities in this circuit, uh, Laodicea was very wealthy, probably the most wealthy. Uh, Really, it was one of the richest uh, cities in its day. Uh, It was the centre of banking of financial exchange. Uh, It had a thriving textile industry, uh, and the industry was particularly famous for producing black wool uh, that made black clothes. Uh, Laodicea's water was pumped down from some hot springs. I I don't know if you can see uh, Hierapolis, uh, just uh, a little bit uh, up on the screen from Laodicea. Colossae's a little bit further over. So Laodicea's hot water was piped down from some hot springs uh, up at Hierapolis. And, of course, by the time it arrived in Laodicea, uh, it was tepid, uh, it was lukewarm, uh, it was sickly. That'll be relevant for understanding this letter, right? And the last thing is that Laodicea was famous for producing this particular eye ointment. It was well-renowned for this ointment that could heal lots of different conditions. So all that is really helpful background, I think, for understanding this letter. But certainly, it's the material wealth of Laodicea. 
right? It, uh, it's affluence, it's comfort uh, that is the dominant characteristic. Right? Well, what we see in this letter uh, is that the material wealth of the city has kind of seeped into the church. Uh, the affluence, the comfort, the luxury of the church uh, has distorted their spiritual senses. And it's quenched, it's kind of cooled their passion for Christ. So in Christ's eyes, this church uh, has really sunk to the lowest of the low. Like we've had false teaching and sexual immorality and idolatry, but it's this church that makes Christ sick because they're lukewarm Christians. That, that's what makes him sick. So in many ways, this letter should be, uh, is the most relevant and challenging of all these letters. Because here in Melbourne, here in Australia, we uh, live in a very wealthy context. Don't we? Like you as an individual may not be wealthy, but in comparison to the rest of the world, uh, you're probably still doing okay. And most of us here are really quite affluent, quite comfortable, quite live quite luxurious lives. So like Laodicea, there's a risk that our affluence, our comfort, our luxury uh, would uh, cool our love for Christ. We kind of quench it in a way uh, so that we become lukewarm Christians, a lukewarm church. A church that makes Christ sick. So that's, that's what this city of Laodicea is like. A comfortable, affluent, uh, wealthy city. Uh, what about the characteristics of Christ? Remember each letter uh, starts with a characteristic of Christ. Christ reveals himself to the church in a, in a particular way. Uh, have a look there at verse 14 if you've got the passage open. Uh, verse 14 says, uh, These words come, these are the words of the Amen the faithful and true witness, uh, the ruler of God's creation. Right, so first Christ reveals himself as the Amen. And that's, that's a bit weird. Uh, what's that all about? In Isaiah chapter 65, uh, verse 16, in fact, in a number of places in the Old Testament, but in Isaiah 65, verse 16, for example, uh, God says, uh, whoever invokes a blessing in the land will do so by the one true God. Uh, the one true God. Right? That phrase uh, literally means uh, the God of the Amen. The God of the Amen. Right? But because there's a, a very close connection uh, between saying Amen and truth. Right? Those ideas are connected. Uh, for example, when uh, you say Amen at the end of your prayers or at the end of someone else's prayers, uh, really what you're saying, well hopefully what you're saying, you're not just kind of doing it as, uh, as some kind of religious thing that you do. Maybe that's sometimes we do that. But, but really what we're saying is what that person just prayed, what I just prayed, is true. It's right. So let it come to pass. Let it be so. Amen to that. That's what we're saying. There's this close connection between what's true and saying Amen. So by calling himself the, the kind of great amen, the final amen, Christ's reminding these Christians that he's God's ultimate word of truth. He's kind of the, the definitive uh, revelation of God, the ultimate revelation. Uh, you might remember in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, Paul says that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. But he's saying there that Christ is the fulfillment of all God's promises. After Christ, God has nothing more to say. He's the definitive word from God. He's the, he's the great amen from God at the end of what God has to say. Uh, along similar lines, he's the faithful and true witness. Right, both these ideas, they're focused on truth, aren't they? Well, why, why this focus on truth? Because this church in Laodicea, we'll see in a bit, uh, is deceived. 
They're they're not deceived by false teachers. We've heard that in other churches, uh, Jezebel, the Nicolaitans. There's none of that here. Uh, This church is self-deceived. For for example, we'll see that they think they're rich, but uh, really they're poor. They can't see themselves clearly. They're, They're living a lie. They're living in a kind of deluded world. Uh, So uh, Christ urges this church to fix their eyes on him. Uh, The the full revelation of God's truth. uh, The one who never has been deceived and never will deceive them. He's a faithful and true witness. He he brings them an accurate testimony of who God is and what life's all about. And third, Christ reveals himself as the ruler of God's creation. Uh, The word ruler there, it can mean either first in rank like it kind of order this way, or it can mean first in order. Right? The, the cause of things, kind of in this way, chronology. And so and I think both are true here. But on the one hand, Christ reminding these Christians that he is the supreme ruler of God's creation. He's first in rank. And because of that, he's got every right to judge his creation and to judge his church, to judge their church. He's the ruler of God's creation, first in rank. On the other hand, uh, he's also reminding them that he's first in order. Uh, By that, I mean that he's the first cause of everything in God's creation. Everything comes from him, right? So Paul says in, in Colossians 1, all things have been created through Christ and for Christ. He is before all things. In him, all things hold together. Christ is supreme in creation. He's the ruler of God's creation. Uh, He's the first cause of creation. Everything came from him. So what does that mean for this church? It means that he's more than able to change their hearts. If he can create the whole world, he's the ruler of God's creation. Uh, What is it to him to change one heart, to change one church? Uh, To take them from being lukewarm to being passionate about him. So that's these characteristics of Christ. That's in verse 14. Verses 15 and 16 uh, have Christ's criticisms of this church. Have a look there. Verse 15. I know your deeds, uh, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you are either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Uh, the word cold there is chilled, right? That's kind of one extreme here. Not like absolutely frozen, but, but like think uh, the water that you might get from a refreshing mountain stream, for example. Right? It's chilled. And the word hot means boiling. Right? Not just a bit hot, but, but boiling. It often describes someone who, who's kind of burning with anger, someone who's passionate in their love for God. Same word, right? But the, but the Laodiceans aren't either of those. Right? They're not boiling water. They're not chilled water. Uh, they're lukewarm water. And Christ says he'd prefer them to be either hot or cold. Now, uh, of course he'd prefer them to be hot. We kind of get that, like spiritually. He'd love them to be passionate about him. Why wouldn't he want that? But, but why would he want them to be cold? Why would he prefer that? that that's, that's a bit strange, I think. Well, in Australia, it's true that in general, uh, cultural or kind of nominal Christianity is decreasing. Overall, that's the case. Uh, But still, there are plenty of people in Australia who would identify as Christians. They tick that box on the census. Uh, But really, uh, in the end, they they kind of treat their faith as somewhat of a hobby. Like like all hobbies, they're they're happy, happy to kind of dabble in it for a couple of hours on Sundays. They do the gardening, they go to church. 
It's a hobby, right? They can see its benefit. Uh, but it's not the burning passion of their lives. It's not something that kind of consumes them and, and takes over their whole life, right? So I don't know if they're Christians. They might be Christians. Uh, but at best, they're lukewarm Christians. And I think we would usually say, well, at least they've got some faith. Well, at least they've got something. But Christ says, no. Christ says he'd prefer them to be completely cold than lukewarm. Like, why is that? Well, I think it's, about, I think it's all about uh, immunizations. I don't know a random link. But most of us, I think, are probably familiar with the concept of immunizations, vaccinations. Like the basic idea, I'm not an expert, but I understand the basic idea is that you inject someone with a very low dose of a particular disease and that stops them from getting the real thing. Right? They're inoculated to it. Right? And I think that's not a bad picture of lukewarm Christians. It's a person who's kind of got just enough Christianity. Just a little bit. They go to church, they say some prayers, maybe they embrace some, some Christian values. Right? They've got just enough Christianity uh, to stop them getting the real thing. They think they've got it, but they haven't. Right? It's like they're inoculated to the real thing, the, the truth of the gospel. And Christ says that these lukewarm Christians actually make him sick. He, he literally wants to, like our translation says spit, but, but really it's the word for spew. It's vomit. That's what he wants. He wants to spew them out of his mouth. Now, I don't think he's talking about salvation here. He's already called them his church. I don't think he's saying the Laodiceans won't be Christians anymore, but he is saying that he finds their version of Christianity. Uh, that's apathetic, that, that's kind of lukewarm, he finds that version of Christianity, their witness for him, uh, to be nauseating. It, it makes him sick. And, and of course he picks this illustration of water uh, because of what I said before. Right? That the Laodiceans were familiar with lukewarm water. They had it all the time. Came down from the hot springs up at Herapolis. By the time it got to them, uh, so the, you know the hot springs, hot water. It's good for cleansing, for washing, for healing. Uh, there was some cold, beautiful, refreshing cold water up at Colossae. Like very, very useful. Uh, but this lukewarm water that arrived at Laodicea was pretty much useful for nothing except making you sick. That, that's all it did. And so that's the picture that, that Christ picks up. In fact, even today, if you Google, uh, I did this during the week, uh, if you Google, uh, you know, 10 things that will make me sick uh, or make me vomit, like one of the things that comes up is lukewarm water. Right? It's an emetic. It's a thing that makes you vomit if you drink it, particularly if it's got a bit of salt in it. Right? But that's the picture here. So that's Christ's main criticism of this church. And in verse 17, uh, it's, he kind of zooms in on the main cause of this church's lukewarmness. And really, it's their material wealth. It's distorted their, their, their spiritual senses, if you like. Christ says, uh, you say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and I do not need a thing. You get that there? Like This church is so wealthy uh, that they've become proud and self-sufficient. They're, they're kind of content and, and self-satisfied in an ungodly way. It's almost like they don't even need Christ. Right? Well, why would they need Christ? They've got stuff. 
money and, and possessions and homes and, and beautiful clothes. And they've got more stuff than they could ever need. They're rich, they say. But Christ says they're wretched and pitiful and poor and blind and naked. I see, we've looked at these seven letters now, or looking at the seventh one now. We've seen that in the other churches there's false teachers, Jezebel, the Nicolaitans, there's this kind of doctrine of Balaam. Uh, we've seen uh, in some of the churches uh, the idea that, that Satan was enthroned in, in the city uh, through the worship of the Roman emperor, through the worship of idols in, in those trade guilds. Right, we've seen that. We've seen uh, the, 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 that Satan was at work through the synagogue, like the, the opposition of Jews who didn't like it, that, that people were converting from Judaism to Christianity. Uh, we've seen all sorts of suffering and opposition and persecution in every other city, but in this city there's no mention of any of that. No opposition of any kind. Right? Why is that? Uh, because this church doesn't bother anyone. That's that they're so lukewarm. They don't stand for anything. They're tepid. Uh, this church doesn't offend anyone. And the only person they offend is Jesus. He's the only person they annoy. They frustrate. They bother in any way. And Christ doesn't pull any punches in, in his assessment, his critique of the church. Uh, they're wretched, he says. Uh, that word's not used a lot in the New Testament, but in, in Romans 7, Paul says, uh, what a wretched man I am. Romans 7:24. Uh, Who will rescue me, he says, from this body that is subject to death? Well, you get the picture there. A wretched person is someone who's carrying a big burden, a spiritual burden, a burden that's, they're subject to something and they have to be freed from it. And that's ironic, isn't it? This church in Laodicea probably thought that their, their money, their wealth, had liberated them. Well, we know true freedom with all this stuff that we've got. But Christ says it's burdened them. They're wretched people. They're enslaved to their money and they have to cry out to him to rescue them. And they're not only wretched, they're pitiful. Right? That comes from, that's related to the word for mercy. Right? This is the picture. Christ looks at his church. They're in such a wretched and horrible state that Christ takes pity on them. Spiritually, they look ordinary. They're deserving of his mercy. Deserving of mercy? They have his mercy. And he has pity on them, but because they're poor. Right? This church, they, they kind of prance around like they're princesses and princes. Got all their beautiful clothes on, showing off their wealth. But Christ says, you're paupers. You're a prince or a princess. You're a spiritually, you're a pauper. You're desperately poor. And they just don't see it, but because they're blind. I don't know if they're altogether blind, but you know, like you remember those funhouse mirrors? I don't know if you've seen those. Uh, you, you look in them, they, they make you look really fat or they distort your face in strange ways. Right? That's kind of what's going on spiritually for this church. Their love of money, their preoccupation with wealth is distorting how they see things spiritually. They've got a completely distorted picture of themselves. And so they think they're wearing these glorious clothes, but spiritually they're naked. I don't know if you know the book, uh, The Emperor's New Clothes. Uh, Ada loves uh, that book. 
Uh, but uh, you, the basic idea is that the emperor, he, he's so blinded by his pride, by his, his own sense of superiority, uh, that he ends up walking down the street naked. Right? That, that's his church. Completely blinded and naked, thinking they're better than everyone else. So the picture is that this church is being torn apart, uh, not by some false teaching or by persecution or by idolatry or sexual immorality or any of that, but by the subtle enticements of money, of wealth, of, of materialism, with it, really. Getting their identity in, in stuff. Uh, a guy named uh, Jerry Bridges wrote a book called The Pursuit of Holiness. Uh, and in that book, uh, he says this about materialism. He says, greed often manifests itself in its basic form, the, the sheer love of money uh, for money's sake. Uh, but it more often is seen in what we call materialism. Uh, because not many of us want to be extremely rich, uh, we just want all the nice things that the world around us considers important. But materialism wars against our souls in a twofold manner. First, uh, it makes us discontent and envious uh, of others. And second, it leads us to pamper and indulge our bodies so that we become soft and lazy. And as we become soft and lazy in our bodies, uh, we tend to become soft and lazy spiritually. Now, I don't know if you agree with that, but I, I, my experience is pretty accurate. I, I think that's the danger of materialism. It's not that you're not a Christian. It's just that you become a soft and maybe lazy and lukewarm Christian. A Christian that's of less use to Christ. A Christian, uh, to read this letter, that makes Christ uh, sick. That's, pretty, that's a pretty stinging criticism of this church. And so he brings his command to the church in verse 18. What's his advice, his command? He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes uh, so you can see. I remember Laodicea is a banking center, right? a place of finance and, and exchange. And that's the picture here. right? Christ saying, uh, you, to, you've got to come to me and you'll be able to exchange all your wealth uh, for true wealth. But for gold that is refined in fire. So, so what, what is this gold? Well, well, I think 1 Peter chapter 1 gives us a clue. At 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, uh, Peter says, uh, These fiery trials have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, that is of greater worth than gold, right, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Yes, you see the connection there, faith, gold, uh, fire. Uh, Christ saying, I think, he's saying to this church, on one level he knows they believe in him. Right? They profess faith in him. Uh, but we all know that we can profess faith in Christ, but on a deeper level in our hearts, uh, we're putting our trust in other things. For security, for comfort, for control perhaps. Uh, and that's what's going on in this church. This church uh, has to repent of putting their faith in their wealth instead of in Christ. 
And if they do that, yeah, if they put their faith in Christ and, and that faith is proved genuine, uh, genuine by their willingness to suffer for Christ, uh, they'll have true riches, right, both now and in the future, right? 1 Peter 1, they'll have a heavenly inheritance that can never be taken away. But that's the first thing. Exchange the worldly wealth for true wealth. Uh, second, uh, come buy from me white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness. Right? Laodicea is a textile industry. And what colour clothes did they create? They created black clothes. Oops, excuse this microphone. Yeah, black clothes. Right? Black wool making black clothes. So here Christ saying, once again, you've got to repent. You've got to take off your black clothes, your, your ungodly, your, your sinful deeds, and put on righteous deeds, put on glory, put on, uh, put on uh, godliness and holiness. I don't, don't be so preoccupied with wearing clothes that are valuable in the eyes of others, keeping up your image, but be preoccupied with wearing clothes that are valuable in his sight. Godliness, holiness, uh, the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, Thirdly, they they need to get this salve uh, to put on their eyes so they can see. Once again, like Laodicea, they they produce that eye ointment. But Christ says, don't worry about your eye eye ointment. Come to me for the true eye ointment. Like You need this this salve that, that won't just open your physical eyes, but your spiritual eyes. So you can really see your spiritual condition and repent. So this church, Laodicea, they get this really strong criticism and command. Verses 15 to 18. So in verse 19, uh, Christ really reassures them. He he wants them to know, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Right? Christ sees the mess that this church is in. Uh, He sees the ugliness of their spiritual condition but he doesn't walk away from them. He doesn't keep his distance from them. He draws near to them. He, he assures them of his love. He has mercy on them. And then he rebukes them and disciplines them. Right? That, that's the ultimate ex- expression of his love because it's the only way out of their spiritual condition, out of their mess. And so in verses 20 and 21, Christ uh, reiterates his commitment to the church. Here I am, he says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. And to the one who's victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. This is an amazing picture, I think, of how gracious Jesus is. You see him here, he's standing outside this church. That's a picture patiently knocking on the door, repeatedly knocking on the door, longing to to come in. And you get the sense that that he'd love everyone in the church to open the door, but he says if even one person would answer, he would come in and eat with them. And now last week we saw in Philadelphia that Christ has the key of David. Christ has the authority to to open the very doors of heaven to whoever he wants. Immense authority. Authority. So why can't he just open this door? Like, what's the go? Well, clearly this is a different door. It's a door that is really a picture, a symbol of repentance. 
Right? The, the door is like the, the reopening of someone's heart to Christ. And Christ is saying, if anyone in this church would do that, if they would repent of their sins, if they would reopen their heart to me, uh, they'll experience a new depth of intimacy with him. That, that, that sin has been uh, interfering with their relationship with Christ. It's been creating a barrier. It's like a door. They've got to open the door. They've got to repent. And if they do, he'll come in and eat with them uh, like a friend. New depth of intimacy. And the promise in verse 21 is that one day those who repent like that and enjoy the, the friendship with Christ, uh, those people will reign with Christ. Right, because we're familiar from the start of Revelation, Christ himself has already ascended. He lives and he reigns in glory. And we heard in chapter 1 that one day he'll return and every knee will bow and tongue confess that he is Lord, either willingly or not. And here the assurance is that if you're a Christian, you will reign with Christ. If you're willing to share in his suffering now, you'll share in his glory later. And so we finish the letter with the words that we've heard seven times now. Every letter finishes. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Uh, We're going to come back to uh, at least most of the rest of Revelation next year. And when we do that, we'll hear a whole lot more about God's plans uh, to both save and judge uh, the world. And to rid this world once and for all from all sin and evil and injustice. The focus will be more on the world. But in these letters, uh, Christ has been judging us, the church. Not so much the world, but his church. He's been correcting and rebuking and, and purifying his church. And at the end of every letter, he said, I hope you've heard what the Spirit's saying to you. I hope we've heard what the Spirit's been saying to us through each of these letters. In particular, I hope you've heard what the Spirit's been saying today. Uh, Because living here in Melbourne, it would be really easy for us to take subtle steps uh, not so much into love of money itself, like Jerry Bridges said, not many of us love money for money's sake, but we really do love the things that money promises us. We love those things. For some of us, the most enticing promise of money is power. You might not label it as that, but really you want the power to be able to change your life circumstances. And to really be able to be a person of influence. And to be able to live without any restriction. Right? Wouldn't that be great? Money offers you that. And so you kind of lap it up. You, you, you lap up the promises of money. And for other people, uh, the, the main promise that they love of money is status. Right? These are the people uh, who spend lots of money on themselves. Uh, they buy nice clothes. They... they get nice jewellery, they have a nice car, a beautiful house. Uh, They're always updating to the latest tech gadget. Uh, They have uh, beautiful holidays and and really good meals. Uh, And they never just do those things or have those things. Uh, They take lots of photos, they put it on Instagram or on Facebook or whatever other social media they're on. Uh, Because what's the point in having any of that if it doesn't let you into a new social circle? That's the point. It's about acceptance. It's about status. You've got to flaunt it on the outside. Because you won't get status if you don't show people what you've got. Right? That's for some of us that that's what money's about. Uh, for others of us here, uh, we love money because it promises control. 
security. And this person's really the opposite of the status person. They, they don't spend much money at all. They, they, are, they live very modestly. Very, very modestly. Tight-fisted, right? They've got all their money saved. It's, it's invested wisely. Uh, they never, ever touch it. And if you talk to this person, they'll tell you that they don't love money at all. Not like that person who's spending all their money on lavish things. Right? They don't love money at all. But they do because you've just got to try and get it off them. And they won't give it away because it's their security. It's how they have control of life. Everything else is chaotic, but at least I've got some money in the bank. So you see what I mean? Like We may not love money in and of itself, but we love these things that money promises. How do, how do we kind of not have our hearts uh, kind of cooled or our love for Christ cooled or quenched by our love of money or the things that money offers us? Well, I, I just, let me suggest three things. Uh, the first is confession, like pretty basic Christian stuff. We have to confess. We have to uh, repent. At least I have to confess. I have to confess that I love power and security and status, the stuff that money offers. I love that stuff much more than I love Christ a lot of the time. And so we've got to confess that. We, we have to repent of that. And the second thing is we've got to recognize that Christ was willing to give up that power, control and status. He was willing to give up all of that for us, for you and I. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, he says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, he didn't have lots of money, but he was rich. He had power and status and control more than we could ever imagine. He had all of it, yet for your sake he became poor. Wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, naked. So that through his poverty you might become rich. We really have to get this truth and believe it, not just in our heads, but it has to get into our hearts that the Christ was willing to give up his wealth for us. And that leads to the third thing, which is that Christ did all that so that in knowing him we can find true wealth, true riches. Because in knowing Christ we've really got true power. Eternal power. We know the power of Christ himself, the ruler of creation, the one with the key of David, the one with all authority in heaven and on earth. We know that Christ, both now and forever, and his power is at work in our lives. So why mess around with the the temporary power that money might offer us? Or we've got true status. An eternally secure status as a child of God. And we've got true security, right? As a child of God, you have a heavenly inheritance. Don't worry about your heaven, your inheritance on earth. You've got a heavenly inheritance that far outweighs that, an inheritance that can never be taken away by anyone. And so I think like, if you want your love for Christ to, to be stoked up, to be fanned into flame, to, to burn with passion, not, not to become lukewarm like this church in Laodicea, because your heart's kind of being drawn away for love of stuff, of money, of materialism, right? If you want that to happen in your life, you actually have to look to Christ. I know I finish every sermon by saying this, right? But you do have to look to Christ. It was the key. You have to look to the one who, though he was rich, was willing to become poor for your sake that you might become rich. As you do that, you'll be able to let go of money. You'll be able to use money for what it is in ways to bring glory to God, not treating it as your God, I must have security from money, so I can't give it away. If you've got security in Christ, you'll be able to give money away. 
Right? That's how this works. Your heart will be liberated from love of money and freed up for love of Christ. Let's pray. Uh, our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, we do thank you for your words to this uh, church in Laodicea. And in many ways, they're, they're just as uh, cutting and stinging for us, or at least for many of us, as we live in uh, relative uh, comfort and affluence. Uh, we confess uh, that we often uh, perhaps find our comfort, our security, our control, our sense of power uh, in the stuff of this world, in the things that we have, rather than in you. And we acknowledge that that can actually uh, quench our love for you. It can cool it. And so I pray this night that by the power of your Spirit, you would, have to, uh, you would help us uh, to turn away from these things, uh, that we might find true uh, riches uh, in knowing you, our Lord Jesus, and that we might be able to use our money in a way that brings honour and praise to you for your good purposes in this world, uh, not treating our money like it is our Lord and Saviour. Uh, so please, uh, Lord God, do this work in our hearts and minds for your glory. Amen.